Hello and welcome to episode three in our Family Law podcast from Pump Court Chambers. We're taking a step away from the finance focus of the first two podcasts to look at what is a rather niche but very important area, special advocates in family proceedings. And to help me with this discussion, I am joined by the learned Mr. Paul Mertens of Pump Court, who is in fact a special advocate. He's on the Attorney General's panel. Paul's practice regularly encompasses family finance, talata, and private law matters, but his practice extends beyond family law, also encompassing civil and public law. He's no stranger to the Queen's Bench, Chancery, and family divisions of the High Court, and has appeared in numerous reported cases, including those where closed material was used in care proceedings, and that's really going to be the focus of our discussion today. Paul was also one of a team of junior counsel to the undercover policing inquiry between 2016 and 2018, and he is currently instructed on the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse. Paul, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. And thank you for that introduction. Uh, very kind. It's uh, uh, a pleasure to be along. <laughs> thanks. Uh, well, you know, we're, it's a pleasure to have you here. So we're going to start with the basics just because it is not something that exactly you encounter every day. I've been talking about special advocates as if it's a a term that everyone knows about. Paul, if you could just tell us firstly with what exactly is a special advocate? Yes, of course. So a uh, special advocate is a security cleared uh, barrister uh, or solicitor who can be appointed in a case in which there is sensitive material that's relevant to the case, but which for reasons of national security or other sensitivities cannot be shared with the parties or, or their legal representatives. And so in those cases, uh, the courts have adopted a procedure whereby a special advocate can be appointed to act on behalf of those parties who are denied access to the material. Uh, and the way that that works is that uh, once the special advocate has been granted access to the material, then they're not allowed to continue to uh, speak to their client, uh, if, if you like, and uh, they then will represent their interests in closed proceedings, which take place between the judge and those who are cleared to uh, see the information. Right, so uh, let's try and put this into context a little bit. We're going to talk about terrorism cases, and I think most family practitioners will, will be familiar with terrorism cases and care proceedings. What kind of other cases would we see you involved in or see a special advocate involved in? Uh, well, you um, might see uh, special advocates being used in cases uh, relating to uh, police intelligence. One of the areas that they uh, have come up in the past have been around uh, suggestions uh, that there is uh, intelligence which indicates uh, an ongoing crime and the disclosure of which would put at risk the investigation into that uh, crime or the methods that have been used to obtain that intelligence. And so uh, you can have a situation, for example, where the child of uh, somebody who's involved with uh, gangs, um, we, you know, we hear a lot these days about county lines, for example, and some of the intelligence that the police have, uh, they wouldn't want to be disclosed, but it could be significant to the best interests or the, the risk of 
significant harm to a child uh, were that information not to be put before the court. Uh, and that's uh, another area where, where this comes up. Okay, well, that's, um, that's helpful to, to put it into a bit more context. Um, so let's, let's talk about radicalization terrorism cases. An example that has been in the news, or a, I should say really a potential example, because it's not actually an example, that's been in the news recently is Shamima Begum. And we know that, unfortunately, her children ha have all passed away in Syria. Um, but say someone left, a similar set of facts, someone's left to join ISIS or similar terrorist organization. They've had their citizenship stripped. They come back to the country, and we know that's what she's been allowed to do to fight her case. How does that start to feed into your role as a special advocate? Well, I think where this all first uh, began was a few years back when we heard about um, a, a number of people leaving from um, East London to go to uh, Syria and other places, um, Afghanistan as well. And at that stage, there were concerns because they were still children uh, about what the state might do to try and protect them. Obviously, there, there being a duty there. Now we're in a situation where a lot of those people have become adults but wish to return to the UK. And we know that at least some of them have had uh, children with people whilst out in Syria. And so they wish to return as, uh, as British citizens and to bring their children back to the country with them. Now, of course, uh, the idea of somebody returning from one of those places gives rise to potential concerns uh, that, that would be of a, of a national security uh, relation. And so uh, there, the issue begins to uh, come within the jurisdiction of the family court, because the court will be concerned about what steps it might need to take to protect any children uh, that return and, and any decisions that are made that would impact on their, their welfare or safety. And so um, it's uh, very easy to see how over the next uh, 12 months or so, there may be cases of this nature, which would require the appointment of uh, special advocates so that that evidence, the information that there, there is that's held by the state concerning uh, their terrorism uh, associations and the risks that they are said to pose, needing to be before the court so that the court can make informed decisions. Uh, if, uh, if you like, the prospect of care proceedings uh, would need to inevitably consider whether a care order could be justified given those, those risks. And so that's, that's one area I would expect we might see something if, if such people try to return to the UK. Right. I mean, I've, I've sort of got two points to pick up on there. The first is, presumably, those considerations apply whether or not the children are physically coming. Say the, the mother comes back to fight the case about citizenship, hypothetically, the children are left in Syria. There's still the potential of wardship proceedings, aren't there? Yes, I think I think that's right, uh, and it's possible at that stage that there would be a need for that information to uh, be before the court. Um, I think, uh, you know, in addition uh, to that, then you you get the situation whereby a person says they need to return, as in Shamim Begum's case, in order to be able to fight their appeal at all, 
uh, fight their case about the revocation of their citizenship. And if they have children, the question then arises as to whether they will be returning with that party, at least for the period during which they're fighting their appeal. Whilst uh, those people are, are in the UK, um, as I understand the position will be with Shamima Begum, they'll be subject to various controls. Uh, and it may be the case that their children would also be subjected to um, uh, similar measures, if not uh, decisions being made by the High Court uh, with regards to their retention, uh, either as wards or, or under a care order in respect of the local authority. Okay, so that's the local authorities. What I really want to ask about next is, you know, you're the local authority. You get wind that someone's coming back to your neck of the woods. They're within your jurisdiction. You've got all your statutory obligations. How are they building that case for a care order where there are sensitive materials? How much do they get to see or how, how, how do they get to do that? Well, I think that the situations always vary, but my understanding is that in some cases, certainly in the past, the amount of information that they've been presented with has been very limited. Indeed, they've been contacted by the relevant agencies or by the police and told that uh, in very brief outline, there is a significant terrorism risk here. And uh, you therefore need to bring proceedings uh, in the benefit uh, and with the interests of the child in, in mind. And so um, it's possible, as you say, that some local authorities may find that they know very little about why they've got to bring the proceedings, but nevertheless are effectively compelled to do so. Uh, and it's at that stage that the court would have to consider whether the appointment of a special advocate or, or a team to represent each of the parties in those proceedings uh, should should be appointed. It's a, a strange set of affairs then for that local authority basically being told you must run a case without knowing what the case is. Um, yeah. So let's let's focus on the context of, of care proceedings then. Um, we know that these these sensitive materials are disclosed in the closed material procedure uh, and I'll come on to the mechanics of that in a moment but just help me understand a bit in terms of the the interface you are representing say father in the the CMP how's your how does that work in terms of your relationship with the father's representative in the open proceedings so how these things normally um, run is that when it's contemplated that a special advocate is going to be appointed uh, and indeed immediately following their approval for uh, appointment, it would be normal for the special advocate to meet with the, um, the individual, the father in, in your example, and their open representatives, their solicitors and, and uh, uh, other members of their legal team barristers that are involved to understand their case to the fullest that they possibly can. And I think that's an important point to make is it's necessary at that stage to gather as much information as you can about a person's case and their situation, uh, because that's going to be your one opportunity to do so. As soon as you are then given the closed material, you're given access to uh, those uh, sensitive documents you're not then allowed to uh, remain in contact with the father, in your example, 
or, or their solicitors uh, or barristers, uh, although they are able to continue to send you information that may um, come to light during the course of the proceedings. There are a couple of um, uh, mechanisms that are used to, 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 to try and achieve that um, to deal with legal professional privilege. Um, but ultimately, it, it's um, a, a one way street that I can hear what they say, but I'm not able to feed information back to them. And that, of course, is to guard against the risk of the sensitive information making its way back to them, which would defeat the object of the, the procedure. Yeah. So that that initial conference is is really vitally important, isn't it? That's you need to be asking all the questions that, that you want answered at that stage. That, that's absolutely right. And I, I can give you uh, an example from the case we are that I was involved in. In that case, I think I spent probably five or six hours with the legal team talking through the whole case, what the proposals were, um, what might be said if a particular line of argument were to emerge and so on. Because, as I said, it's the one opportunity to be able to do that. Um, uh, if I give you a little more information about what then happens, it, it might become clear why that's necessary, because the role of a special advocate during the closed proceedings is really twofold. First of all, it's to try and um, uh, demonstrate that the sensitive material uh, which is being asserted isn't as sensitive as is being suggested. And so um, the first task is to try and get as much of that information out of the closed procedure and into open so that it can be viewed by the father and by his representatives in, in your example. And of course, that's better for everybody because the father and the rep his open representatives will know better what his case is. Um, so that's that's the first part of it, to try and uh, secure as much information passing out into, into open. And it's a continual process. Um, so you might say, well, the information's already in the public domain, and so there's no real sensitivity there. That, that's an example. The next part then is, to the extent that there remains closed material, it's to advance the arguments that could be put if that person knew about the information. And so there's a degree of um, understanding their position in advance necessary in order to be able to uh, make their case to the best of your ability. And, and that's, that's where it comes in during the closed part of the yeah. presentations. I, that, that, that second bit is tricky though, isn't it? Because if you're, you're speaking to your, your client, presumably at a pretty early stage in proceedings, say we go back to that the local authority having that issue of you they're being told they have to issue they don't really know why if if you're in that situation where you've got a threshold that's not particularly fleshed out for reasons of sensitive material you're then having to sit down with your client and envisage all possible lines of argument that must be pretty hard when presumably the evidence at that initial stage is fairly sparse yeah, I would agree with that. And, and of course, it's one reason why um, it's said that the special advocate procedure is an imperfect solution. It's very difficult to predict all possible lines. On the other hand, um, I would say that uh, in the terrorism context, it is um, uh, clear 
that there is some suspicion related to terrorism. And so what you, of course, can do is ask around the kinds of things that um, a person might be aware of. Have you ever been approached previously? Has anybody ever suggested that you were involved in it? Do you know anybody who you would have suspicions about being involved in it that you're associated with in, in some way? And so to an extent, being able to predict those things becomes a little easier. Of course, the other thing that goes with that is that as you gain experience of dealing with sensitive material, and this is, of course, something that um, both as a special advocate and also working with regards to undercover policing, um, I uh, have developed an understanding of how those uh, matters might arise, and it gives me that better um, uh, or better understanding of the avenues to explore before moving into uh, receipt of the closed information. Well, okay, let's talk about um, the, well, I suppose more of the logistics about the closed material procedure. I mean, firstly, I know that there's this weird quirk about the closed material procedures not actually being provided for in the family procedure rules. And I, I, when I was a pupil, we were, I was doing a case and from memory, I think we were trying to argue that the, the CPR could be applied where the FPR was lacking. And we even, we pointed to finance cases like Goldstone and Goldstone and Immerman. Um, but in this situation where, as I say, there is no FPR and civil proceedings within the JSA don't seem to extend to family proceedings, how do we get around that problem? Well, for a number of years now, I think probably spanning back until about 2015, there's been a suggestion that the family procedure rules will be amended to incorporate similar rules to those that appear within the civil procedure rules to allow for closed material procedures. That hasn't come about, uh, and, and um, uh, I confess that I don't really know why not. What has happened, however, is that there have been a number of um, family cases to consider the exercise of the discretion, including some which went all the way up to the Supreme Court. Uh, and in one of those cases, in, in Re A, um, Baroness Hale, in that case, uh, considered that it may be possible under the inherent jurisdiction for the court to adopt a procedure such as a, a closed material procedure because the concerns in that case uh, were about the child's welfare which must of course be the court's paramount uh, concern and therefore it could be justified in, in a way that couldn't be justified where it was the state's rights uh, which were an issue and, and that was the point that arose uh, in uh, Al-Rawi, uh, a very important case uh, relating to closed material procedures. And so since then, there have been a number of cases in the High Court where um, the president uh, at the time, um, uh, Mr. Small, uh, and subsequently Mr. Justice Cobb, have recognised that it's possible to, to adopt that approach, but only as a matter of uh, last resort or, or as um, uh, as Mr Justice Cobb put it in Riyadh, reasonably exceptionally. And, and, and it seems to me that that must be um, right because of the uh, impact that it has on uh, someone's uh, access to a fair trial. By denying them access to some of the material, you are inevitably impinging on the normal procedures and so there must be good justification um, for doing so. 
I think just to, to, to make this point about it, it's always been recognised within the Strasbourg jurisprudence that there can be limits to the fair trial rights uh, and uh, those are qualified uh, in, in the benefit of the public interest. And so national security is one of the bases upon which uh, you can uh, limit those otherwise important rights. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it makes sense. Um, I, look, as someone that's that's been there where most people haven't, just sort of practically, how do these hearings work there in terms of you, you've got your sensitive materials? Um, how how do they sit these clo this closed procedure alongside the open proceedings? Well, what what normally happens, as I say, is having worked out which parts of the information can be disclosed into open, you then proceed to the substantive hearing, the the trial, if you like, and at that stage, you typically would begin with the open part of the proceedings. And so uh, uh, there'll be a lot of people in court. That's one of the things that you quickly come to learn because each of the parties and their open representatives will be present. But in addition, if special advocates have been appointed, then a special advocate uh, representing each of those parties would also be present. And that, again, is, is key, uh, it seems to me, because they need to hear that part of the open case and see how it develops so as to be in the best possible position to be able to then advance any arguments that they need to in closed. And so typically you would have the open part of the procedure first of the hearing and then afterwards move into closed where everybody who's not entitled to be there is excluded. The courtroom gets locked down. Um, there's not allowed to be any... Um, uh, electronic devices and all the things that you might expect um, precautions are taken so that there's no uh, risk of the information leaking out uh, and then um, you proceed with with the hearing in, in closed and you make submissions on behalf of the person that you're uh, whose interests you're representing. So hang on no electronic devices at all no, no not your iPad not your laptop no, um, uh, what you uh, realise is... That it's a horrible, in... a horrible backtracking to before paperless working. Yeah, it's back to the, uh, to the blue books, I'm afraid, Mark. But um, oh, uh, it's, it's a caution that has to be taken. And of course, those then have to be carefully handled uh, uh, as well. Yeah, no, I mean, obviously it makes sense. Um, just a, a practical point, say care proceedings, you know, you've got bog standard care proceedings, local authority, mother, father, guardian. Um, is it always the case that every party, all those four parties, would then have a special advocate appointed? Um, the answer to that is, is no. And indeed, there have been some cases where only, say, one or two of the um, uh, parties, perhaps the mother and the father, um, would have special advocates, but the others uh, wouldn't. Um, certainly in some cases, the uh, in cases where the police have access to the uh, sensitive information they've been invited to intervene and effectively present that information to the court uh, in place of the local authority and in addition um, uh, then uh, certainly in the case that I was involved in where I was actually the special advocate for the Guardian um, uh, which is I think the, the correct way forward 
uh, that uh, in those cases then everybody would have somebody who's able to talk to the closed information during the closed part of the the hearing. Yeah, I, I mean, this is this um, is what my concern is: is that these proceedings are about the best interests of children, and they have a guardian appointed to participate in the litigation on their behalf. It just doesn't seem to make any sense that that guardian then is not potentially represented in the CMP. Well, well, quite, and and I agree with that. I think it is important that the guardian has uh, representation both in open and enclosed but but ultimately it will come down to the discretion of uh, the court in deciding uh, about that issue and um, there are also other practical issues that arise uh, in particular about the funding of uh, special advocates who although uh, appointed via the attorney general's office um, are not funded by the attorney general's office and so there have been some cases dealing with uh, who's responsible for picking up the tab for the special advocates. Uh, and again, that, um, uh, as things currently stand, has been identified as being the party that wishes to withhold the information from general disclosure. And so that might be the police or, or the intelligence agencies. Right. Always trying to find out who's going to pay, I suppose. Um, well, it's been a really interesting point. I've got one last point, which is a really or a question, which is a very narrow question. But if you could just help me understand how closed material procedures differ from public interest immunity. Yeah, of course. Now, um, I should perhaps say that there's been some uh, uncertainty and confusion, even in the authorities, about this particular point. The big distinction that it's important to to understand is that if somebody asserts public interest immunity the effect will be that that information isn't placed before the court and isn't made available to the court in reaching its decision. Now of course it's easy to see why that could be problematic if you're dealing with the best interests of the child and so what uh, typically um, uh, people wish is, is for there to be this closed procedure so that the information can be placed before the court and, and therefore inform the court's decision making in respect of the, the, the child. There are of course cases that go the other way and the people that are seeking to withhold the information wish to assert PII so that it doesn't then colour the court's uh, mm. approach to the evidence. But it's an important distinction, and it's right that you you raise it, particularly since there seems to have been some confusion about it uh, over over the um, over the recent past. Well, it seems seems to make sense to me now. Thank you very much, Paul. Um, I think that's probably all we've got time for. I do hope that this brief insight into what is clearly a complex world has been of interest and intrigue for our listeners. Sadly, I don't think Paul's going to be short of work as a special advocate for years to come. Uh, as ever, please do also check out our YouTube channel where you can find a whole host of webinars on a broad range of family law topics. Coming soon, I'll be speaking to Corinne Eiton about where family and criminal proceedings collide after her recent unusual experience of a family directions hearing taking, taking place in the Crown Court in criminal proceedings. Uh, if you do have any suggestions for topics or requests, please do send me an email at m.ablett at pumpcourtchambers.com. Thank you for listening. Paul, thank you so much for, for joining. It's been really, really interesting. Uh, goodbye. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thanks.